Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Happy Monday. It's Monday, Monday, June 26th. Do you know that people are statistically more likely to have a heart attack on Monday than any other day of the week? That doesn't surprise me. Why so? Because you hit Monday and you're going, oh no, it's, I was supposed to have that done by today and oh, I don't. Okay. And then it's like the work week's in front of you yeah. and it's just. Yeah. Lots of stress today. Yeah. Lots of people. Yeah. June 26th, you asked though, right before we came on, did anything happen on June 26th? And actually, quite a quite a lot happened on June 26th. Well, do share. Give us the best. Um, the uh, best. Okay. At 1945, the Charter of the United Nations was signed by 50 countries in San Francisco. Wow. On June 26th. Okay. Uh, 1948, the Berlin Airlift began in earnest after the Soviet Union cut off land and water routes to the isolated western sectors of, of Berlin. Okay. I'm going to go to the bathroom. June 26th. Uh, 1963, uh, President John F. Kennedy visited West Berlin. June 26th. A lot happened in Berlin, apparently, on June 26th. Um, yeah. Uh, 1990, George H.W. Bush went back on his No New Taxes campaign pledge. Oh, oh G-Dub. George H.Dub. Yeah. Anyways, so stuff happened on June 26th. Lots of exciting things. Yeah. Not um, as exciting as what we're about to look at today. Not as exciting as about what we're about to look at today. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, if you're still with us, we're in Job. Uh, Job again uh, in Job 7, 8, and 9. And then again in Acts chapter 7. We get to finish Acts Finally chapter 7. Chapter 7. Uh, today. Dude, Stephen wasn't even an apostle. This guy's, this guy's a deacon. And right. this guy preached one of the longest sermons in all of scripture. Almost Who's like, this guy think he is? Like Pastor Kellen? <laughs> like an hour and a half, his first sermon, yep. basically. If you guys don't know who that is, then... Um, Pastor Kellen at Compass Bible Church, Aliso Viejo. Yeah. And you can uh, find out, just ask him about his 75-minute sermon and yeah. see what happens. Uh-huh. But Stephen would probably went longer. Yeah. All right. So uh, Job chapter 7. I don't uh, know. Job, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, Job continues uh, his defense. And he's in this weird, we talked about it yesterday, that he's in this waiting room of just suffering and silence from God right now. And he's looking for answers and he's in this, and maybe you've been here before where the nights are just, they feel like they are interminably long, um, where you can't sleep and you see every hour on the hour and you're tossing and turning either physical discomfort, emotional discomfort. Um, you're, you're, you're anxious about something. The, the night is just the worst part of the, of the, the whole day. And then it seems like the days he goes on, he says, the days fly by. The days are fast. They're, they're like a, a weaver's shuttle, which would have been uh, the, the device that carried the thread horizontally across back and forth uh, through the vertical uh, threads that would have made up a cloth. And, and those that were skilled at it could make that go very quickly. So Job is, is here saying, man, my nights seem like they take forever and the, the days go by so fast and I'm back in the nights again. And this is just a miserable experience. Uh, in verses 7 through 10, he, he turns and basically asks the creator, he says, do you not realize that I'm perishing is, is the summation of what he's saying there. He says, remember, he's, he's asking God to remember that my, my life is like a breath. This is almost like the psalmist when the psalmist is calling on God saying, God, do you not know? Do you not see me? Do you, where, how long, oh Lord, must I be here? And here we see Job in, in his suffering and in his turmoil, uh, pleading with the Lord to remember what's going on with him. It's not as though God has forgotten, but this is more of 
of uh, just a, a device that he employs here to, to stress what's going on in his life. Verse 11, he basically says, what do I have to lose anymore? He says, I'm not going to restrain my mouth. He says, I'm going to speak in the anguish of my spirit and complain in the bitterness of my soul. Anyone who doesn't think that the Bible speaks to where real humanity is at times and, and, and real suffering and real pain, read that again. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit and complain in the bitterness of my soul. Um, your, your lowest time, right? And Job is there and he's going, this is what I'm, I'm, I've got nothing left to lose. What else are you going to do to me? I'm going to just lay it out here. In verse 16, I loathe my life, right? Maybe some of you have made a statement like that. I hate my life. I loathe where I'm at. I would rather not live forever. Given the chance, I would not choose to live forever. Leave me alone for my days are, are but a breath. Leave me alone. Just let me be. He's not even looking for it to get better anymore necessarily. He just wants God to, to remove this hand of affliction from him so that he's not suffering active and it's not compiling upon him over and over and over again. And even to his counselor saying, hey, just look, leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting line in verse 19. He says, how long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Uh, that's an interesting uh, idiom, not one that, that I've ever used before. Um, Same here. But maybe you've used the term blink of an eye. And it's the same concept there that it doesn't take as long to swallow. And Job's just saying, can I just have respite enough to to be able to swallow? Like as long as it takes me to swallow, that's all I'm looking for at this point. Just long enough to swallow. Why have you made me your mark? Verse 20. Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? He's now entertaining the charge of Eliphaz. He's going, maybe I do have sin here, but if, even if I do, how long, like, why will you not forgive this? Why will you not pardon this for me? That's his response to Eliphaz chapter eight. Then friend number two shows up shortest man in the Bible. (laughs) But um, build at the shoe height. Wow. Yep, shoe height. That's I'll how to forget that's that. That's how tall he was. He was a shoe height. <laughs> so he comes in and he's not much better than Eliphaz. Um, and he, he's trying to understand. As I was reading this, I just I, it struck me that the Bildad seemed to be trying to understand the the mystery of what was going on through human understanding and logic here. And it seemed he was trying to say, you know, let's again, just examine the evidence of how God operates and how God has operated and what God will do. And then let's respond accordingly. Right. And he says there in verse eight, he says, inquire, please, of bygone ages. Consider what our fathers have searched out for. We are but of yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. And I wrote next to that. I said, man, he's basically saying, do as I say, not as I do. Because he's assuming that he can draw conclusions about how God operates. And he's telling Job, hey, don't draw conclusions about how God operates because we're just but of yesterday, but he's of ages past. He's Mm. of eternity. And so it's like, dude, build that. Take your own advice here. Realize we don't understand fully what's going on here. Well, I think his intuition is right. And this is what makes Job so interesting because that's, I think there's helpfulness in saying, look, the, the ancients have said a lot of good things that have stood the test of time. I, I think of a kind of the modern idiom, you know, for every modern book you read, read 10 ancient books or mm. old books that have stood. That. So I get that. And that's wise to a point. And that's where you have someone like Zophar, uh, rather uh, Bildad go wrong. Because he uses this as the only means by which to make decisions in his life and also the life of Job. It's sad because there's, it's kind of true, but it's just taken to, it's the right truth with the wrong conclusions. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think we see Bildad's love for his friend in verses 20 through 22, when he says, look, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. So Bildad here is trying to encourage his friend here, encourage Job. If, if Job will repent, essentially, if Job will, will, will turn from his sin and whatever God is doing here, look, there's a bright future in store for you, Job. Like be encouraged things can get better here. And we've all got that friend. And sometimes they're super helpful. And other times it's like, dude, mm. I, I, that's not what I need right now. I just need somebody to, to, to mourn with me and weep with me. Like, yes, I know this is all working together for good. And yes, I know that there's brighter days ahead, but right now I'm, I'm just feeling it right now. And it's not, it's not helpful, but, uh, but Bill, that's trying to, to encourage his friend there. And then Job responds though, in chapter nine, and it's, it's just this, this, uh, statement of, of theology that that is is right and and it just makes me so thankful for the gospel in verse two when he says truly i know that it's so but how can a man be right before god if one wished to contend with him one could not answer him once in a thousand times psalm 130 verse 3 says this if you O lord should mark iniquities who could stand before you and that's kind of where job's at he's like how could how could a man ever be right before god like yes i i understand that that judgment follows sin, but, but how could anyone ever be completely blameless before God? He says in verse 11, behold, he passes by me. I see him not. He moves on, but I, I, I do not perceive him. There's this frustration of the transcendence and the imminence of God here. And Job is just helpless. He's like, God has just wrecked me. But yet, even if he were to pass right in front of me, I, I wouldn't know it. I wouldn't be able to tell it. I, I, I can't take up my appeal to him. I can't say to him, verse 12, what are you doing? Um, Again, Job's just frustration with his circumstances here continues to 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 go forward. Verse thirteen, by the way, Rahab here uh, is a, a mythical sea creature, and so think Leviathan as that that will come up later on in the book of Job. It's not a one for one, but it's uh, thought to be a, a mythical sea creature there. Um, and he's just saying, look, God even masters over the these mythical monsters from the deep. How can I ever hope to contend with God? He crushes me, verse 17. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. I loathe my life, again, verse 21. And then he, as if to respond to Bildad, when Bildad was trying to encourage him, at the end there, he says, it's all one, therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers his face to its judges. If not he, then who is it? So Job's saying, what you're saying doesn't hold water. Like there are wicked who are getting away with things and there are the innocent who are suffering. Could you help shed some light on this? Because as we read through this, chapter nine presents something of a puzzle. Chapter nine, Job says, how can a man be right before God? And yet at the same time, later in the chapter, he's willing to say, look, I am blameless. Verse 21, I'm blameless. And yet who can be right before him? God affirms that he's blameless in, in the first few chapters of the scripture. So what do you think he's arguing here? Ultimately, he's not saying that he's perfectly righteous, it seems, but he's also acknowledging that he's innocent in the right. grand scheme of this. Well, I, th- I think he's responding to this idea that his, his friends are, are continue to come back to you. You must have done something, Job. And I think Job's looking at his life going, as far as I know, there's no major pockets of unconfessed sin or anything that I'm harboring here that God might be trying to root out of my life. Am I perfect? No. And I think that's what he's driving at here. If, if, if God were to count every single sin and judge every single sin, no one could contend with him. 
no one could stand up before him. Hmm. But as it is, you guys are saying, I'm suffering because of sin in my life. And I think Job would say, I'll, I'll admit to you, I've got sin in my life. But generally speaking, I, I'm willing to stand up and say, I'm blameless right now. I, I, there's nothing that I can find that God would be trying to, to, to bring to light or to root out or to discipline me for even. And I think that's where he's, he's responding. That's really helpful. And one thing we haven't really touched on just yet, at least as, we, as we've made our way through the book of Job, is to remember that what we're reading is poetic. Mm. We're reading poetry. We're reading a, a sing-songy kind of call and response from Job and his friends. And so when Job says things, they're meant to be understood from the poetic language. They're meant to be hyperbolic and they're meant to be illustrative right. and, and to show color to the scene and not just to be strictly literal in their application. Yet another way for us to read wrongly is to read from the, read the text in a very wooden way. So be, keep that in mind as you continue reading on. A couple of episodes ago, maybe a week ago, I mentioned that I like to, to look for gospel booms in the scripture, in oh, the Old Testament, here we the, go. the cadence as it builds towards the cross. And I think we see another one here, uh, though framed negatively. It, it encouraged me as I read it in verses 32 through 33 of chapter nine, when Job said, he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And then he says this, there is no arbiter between us, no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Uh, we find in the New Testament that there is an arbiter between God and man. There is a mediator between God and man. There is one who will come to our defense, not to plead our innocence, but his innocence on our behalf. And that is our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I think we even see some of that anticipated, though Job didn't understand that. I think in the way that scripture is recorded and preserved for us, we can certainly see that and rejoice that we do have an arbiter ourselves today. That's right. New Testament, we finish up Acts chapter 7. Stephen's defense comes to its conclusion, and uh, he quotes from some Old Testament passages here, both Amos chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 66. Um, and he's, again, trying to get them to understand the problem here. You remember the false charges brought against Stephen had to do with uh, him defaming the temple or him uh, talking about Jesus saying that he was going to, to, to tear down the temple. Right. Well, look at, at verse 48. He says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then 51, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit tell they, me what you really think Stephen. right exactly exactly <laughs> okay they you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it and that's the climax of his argument. He's basically, he's gone through this history of Israel showing how they missed God's attempts to deliver them so many, so many times in the past. Mm. And finally he gets here and he goes, you're concerned about this temple. God's not in the temple right now. He's, a, he's not dwelling in this building. He wasn't even permanently dwelling in the Old Testament building. He, was, right. he would take up residence there. But even the Old Testament prophets said, he, Solomon who built the temple said, I, I know you're not contained within these walls. And then he gets to this, to the, the ultimate. He says, look, you're doing the same thing your fathers did. They killed the prophets who announced the coming of Jesus. You actually killed Jesus. And that's, that's his main indictment there. Wow, that's powerful too, because you, you have this climactic scene where, again, a deacon, not one of the apostles, is just spitting flames at these guys, and it crescendos into this very strong forthright accusation. Look, you're confronted with the gospel, and I really appreciate Stephen's strength here. There's not a lot of guys that you hear preaching like this or even 
talking in these strong masculine ways. But man, I, I appreciated that. I think there's a place for that even in the church today to have some strong teaching. Although generally speaking, it's probably not going to be well received by most people. But in Stephen's case, filled with the Holy Spirit, he does it. It's amazing. It's cool to watch. And man, I hope we have some of that in our church. For sure. For sure. Filled with the Spirit. That, you want to know what it looks like? And this is a great picture of what it looks like. Rest of chapter seven, the, the opponents get the, the point. They understand what he's after with them. Really be hard to miss that. Well, yeah. If, if you miss that, you probably... You shouldn't be in that circle, I'm guessing. <laughs> you stiff neck person. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I've been working it out, actually. Thank you for noticing, Stephen. And just the contrast in 54 and 55. They grind their teeth, enraged at him, but he, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Okay, hold on. Before you go any further, I've had Mormons bring this very verse up. So I'm going to I'm gonna throw the, the accusation to you on the spot to answer. Because you know we don't, we don't rehearse this, by the way. If you're listening to this, we don't rehearse. We just talk. So here's, the, here's what they would say. Clearly, Jesus and the Father are two separate entities. Because here, you have Jesus and the Father together. Stephen sees them. He sees Jesus standing next to God himself. So it's in verse 55 and in verse 56. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How are they wrong? What would you say to the, the Mormon who would say this is evidence of the fact that there's three personages and each are distinct individuals? I, I, I think it's pulling a verse out of a context and not treating the verse in the context of the entirety of scripture. I, I don't think it's it's a, a right exegetical uh, approach there. And there's a shorthand for how we refer to the father by referring to him as God. We do it all the time. Right. Um, or Jesus as Jesus, or we'll call Jesus the son, but we're not emphasizing that it's a separate personage or separate, um, that there's three separate gods here. This is a, a, an affirmation, I would say of the Trinity, just like at the baptism of Christ, you see the father speaking, you see the spirit descending as the dove and you see Jesus as the one being baptized there. Mm. That, that doesn't mean that there are three separate personages that are, that are three separate gods here, but that we're dealing with um, the the mystery that is the Trinity and it's being explained here. I think this is support for the Trinity more than it is anything else. Absolutely. And and, and that's that's pretty much the, the response we might give to them. And we might even say, well, look, what you have here is a poetic way to describe what Stephen is seeing. We, mm-hmm. we, it's a vision after mm-hmm. all. We don't know exactly what Stephen is seeing. If you go back to the Old Testament, you have the vision of Ezekiel. If you were to put that in a very literal context, you'd be missing the point. It's symbolic. And here we have the symbolic Jesus at the right hand of God, which demonstrates his position, his power, his authority, and his his place of prominence. Um, and, and notice here what we see. He says, I see or I saw the glory of God. It's a way to refer to God, of course, but he's saying, look, I, this is what I saw. And, and it's evidence to Jesus' preeminent position. So we shouldn't see here multiple gods. What we do see is the triune God revealed, but not in three separate gods. Absolutely. Uh, they, the Jewish opponents uh, get even more angry at this. Um, they cry out with a loud voice, stop their ears, rushed at him together. They cast him out of the city and they stone him. And Stephen becomes the first recorded martyr for wow. his faith. Um, the but deacon. It's deacon. And in, in, in the note there, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Uh, he'll come into play quite a bit in the, Very the soon. coming pages of the Bible. So why'd they um, kill him? They, they killed him for what they perceived as blasphemy, right? Mm. And they killed him. Blasphemy means to take what is high and to bring it low. And so they are, are frustrated. They're angry at that. But, but they're also killing him because they're personally probably convicted a little bit here. And I think you see two responses in the explosion of the early church from the Jewish people. You see those that are cut to the quick and want to repent. 
and they're saying, what must we do to be saved? And they, they, they mourn over that. And then you see the others that are, are angry over it and want right. to retaliate and strike out. But just the love for, from Stephen for those that are, are killing him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I get angry reading this for Stephen. Yeah. And yet Stephen is dying, praying that God forgives him just as his savior prayed, Lord, do not hold this against them. Father, do not hold this against them. Right. For they know not what they do. I get angry when people cut me off on the, on the road, but maybe I should take a page out of Stephen's playbook here and pray for those people. That might be a good <laughs> idea. That might be a good idea. That'd be great application. Or when you see the temperature being 109 degrees and it's like, ugh, I'm, I'm righteously indignant over that. <laughs> I've got beef with Adam. When we get to heaven and we're like, Adam, your sin, dude, buddy, it would have been 75 every day. Could have been Ugh. take him out back anyways, behind the heavenly woodshed. <laughs> Yikes. All right. Hey, we, uh, we appreciate you guys for tuning in and listening again, as always. And we'll catch you tomorrow for another episode of the daily Bible podcast. See you tomorrow. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. <laughs>